0: I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to UpZoned. The OG hurt nobody. This damn clean, hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny. I'm an urban planner at Gould Evans in Kansas City, and joined with me today is our regular co-host and my friend, Chuck Marone, founder of the Strong Towns organization. How's it going, Chuck?
1: Hey, it's, it's going delightful here, and uh, the, the weather has definitely turned. Uh, frost on the windows in the morning and, and ice frozen over you know, in the, uh, the dog dish and all that stuff. So getting ready for winter, it's kind of fun.
0: Yes, it is, it is fun in some ways. It's, it's turned here. We aren't to the point of frost, um, although I'm kind of looking forward to it because my allergies are absolutely terrible this year. So soon we'll have some frost probably by, in the next month or so. So the article that we are going to be covering today was published in the American Conservative and written by Jason Segeti entitled Towards a More Inclusive Urbanism. It was written as a response to a thought-provoking question asked by Addison Del Maestro, what can urbanism really say about classically urban places facing steep long-term decline? His first response considers what the term urbanism actually means and what it means to be a self-proclaimed urbanist, and most importantly, what these terms mean for North America's legacy cities. Anyone following popular urbanists on social media can pretty quickly get a sense of the frustration and angst facing advocates of creating places worth caring about through better urban design and economic policy. However, the author of this piece recognizes how urbanism and popular culture overwhelmingly focuses on the context and challenges of what he calls front row cities, Contexts and challenges that less economically successful legacy cities cannot fully relate to. So back row cities often face very different economic realities that require different approaches to urban policy that are not emphasized in popular conversation. When policies best suited for front row cities are applied to these places, advocates and practitioners can unintentionally marginalize the very real needs of these communities and, issues that are lower on Maslow's hierarchy of urban development needs caused by too little investment over long amounts of time. So I thought this was a very thought-provoking article. I wanted to talk about it with you because we are both individuals who do not live in front row cities, Before we get into this, I really want to hear a little bit about your perspective on this article as somebody who lives in Brainerd, Minnesota, which is a small American town that is in a lot of ways very different from my place. Right. And
1: we've experienced here the disinvestment. You know, that's very typical of these kind of cities, not as much as a place like Duluth or Superior or, you know, the things I've experienced in Cleveland in Erie, Pennsylvania, a place I've been to a a number of times, in Akron, where Jason is from. It's basically the the disinvestment that we have experienced here, but on a larger scale, is what you see in those places. I want to empathize with the point that he's making up front, which is one where, hey, the people that are center of the urbanism, you know, let's use air quotes around urbanism, urbanism conversation tend to be from New York. They tend to be from San Francisco. They tend to, you know, idealize European cities and kind of preach to you about the Netherlands. And if you're not doing this, you're, you're just clearly not in the right place. I think that in terms of like the urbanist conversation, that is true. But I think that that is true in like the broader American conversation. You know, all of our media emanates from major cities. Uh, the people who work in our media, uh, whether it's the social media giant companies uh, or whether it's, you know, the movies we watch or the TV shows we watch, they're all, you know, the background and the understandings of all the people involved in that pretty much are dominated by a couple big major American cities. And so if you live in a place that is not that, there's a dissonance between what you watch and the place you live and your experience in everyday life. And I think, you know, we see this experienced in our politics. We see this in our cultural dialogue. Uh, We sometimes call these people urban elites. I, I think that there's some misperceptions there from people who live in places like mine of them. You know, we think they're all Sex in the City or Seinfeld or whatever the thing you grew up with. But, you know, when it gets to just the narrow urbanism conversation, I I do think that dynamic is still there and you can bristle under it, particularly if you're a, a professional working in one of these not sexy places.
0: Yeah. In the popular world of urbanism, it really does focus a lot on big cities and that's part of the reason why the practice of urban design and planning seem elitist if you're just looking at social media, because what is right in New York City or Vancouver may not be the right approach for you know a place like Kansas City or Akron, Ohio or Brainerd, Minnesota. And to the author's point, many small towns in America don't necessarily have the organizational or social capital required in order to provide the professional expertise to communities that would benefit from it. But I don't think that this necessarily means that urbanism cannot be practiced in places without a so-called professional class of urban elites, as you might might call it. I feel that because of the internet, resources that inform people about urban design and urban policy are much more readily available than ever before. And there's absolutely value in professional expertise and experience, but I don't think that urbanism needs to necessarily be limited to just that. I think that there's something to looking beyond popular urbanism that focuses on how you design and create policy and economically successful places and instead leaning into local wisdom in addition to building up a, a local knowledge.
1: Right. Let's pull back the veil a little bit on, you know, some of our great cities because if if you go to New York, I sometimes feel like The American Planning Association conference that happens in Cleveland or in Minneapolis or what have you, you know, like the state chapter, they'll put up a slide of New York and New York is, you know, the High Line, Central Park and Broadway Avenue. And, And you're like, yeah, these places in New York are fantastic and they're amazing. They're some of the best urban spaces in North America. Yet, you know, you can go just a few blocks off of all those things and see places that really deeply struggle in ways that you know, I, I think professionals struggle to deal with. And, and New York struggles to deal with the same way that we do here. We have an amazing amount of readership out of New York and San Francisco and Chicago. We have a huge number of people that listen to this podcast from those places. And there was a time many years ago when I would ask, like, what, what in the world do someone, you know? does someone from Brainerd and someone from Kansas City have to say that would inform these places? The reality is that most of these places are stuck in the same kind of things that we're stuck in. I think that that reveals something else. And it's it's something else about, I think, the way we tend to look at ourselves in Brainerd, in Kansas City, in some of these struggling places around the Great Lakes. And I think that that is more on us than on them. While New York is more than the Highline and Central Park, Brainerd is more than a deteriorated downtown and struggling neighborhoods. Um, There's actually a lot of really good stuff here. And while it might not rise to the extent, you know, or the prominence of, you know, a high line or a central park, uh, we've got a really nice park in the middle of town. It needs a lot of work. It needs a lot of help, but it's actually not not a bad place and we can make it a lot better real easily. I think sometimes we get trapped into thinking that What created the High Line, what created Central Park, what created these things that we should strive to is some brilliant urbanist with a huge budget and a big central plan and lots of authority, when the reality is, is that even those things were derivations of kind of bottom-up work. They were kind of the the end result of of a lot of little small actions. And we have that capacity ourselves in all these places to to do things that will add up to something that ultimately might be on the front of an APA magazine, if if that's our goal. The idea that we would have to start with that, I think, creates all these limitations for ourselves that are are really self-harming.
0: So the concept of a front row city versus a back row city is interesting to me. I live in Kansas City, Missouri, which is certainly not a front row city in the way that the author describes it, but we really do have a variety of different markets even within our city and certainly in our region. We have, in a sense, front row neighborhoods and back row neighborhoods, Or, you know, as the author would define these terms, neighborhoods with the economic leverage to demand popular urban design practices, and then neighborhoods with little to no economic leverage that have experienced decline and stagnation for decades. So admittedly, urban design issues in Kansas City are largely focused on our more front row neighborhoods. And I think that's largely because that's where investment and change is taking place, In a way it's reactive urbanism caused by reinvestment that is occurring faster than we as a culture can relearn what it means to build and design a great city. So we have this advocacy where we need to relearn these fundamental principles of urban design quickly in a larger culture that may not see the value. However, I can attest that there are people in Kansas City who are doing urban planning and design work in places where they aren't the front and center popular urbanist conversations they aren't they aren't the center of that and i think one of the ways that this happens is through expertise within neighborhood organizations where people are playing a long-term role in neighborhood development issues there are neighborhoods in Kansas City that have amazing people working full-time on policy issues dealing with topics like land speculation and absentee landlords. And these are not necessarily the sexiest topics that are going to land you on the front page of an APA magazine, but they're very, very important. And I think that there's a lot of value in where our local organizations kind of step in to bring expertise to less economically strong places. One example is the Kansas City Urban Land Institute does this through technical assistance panels where they bring in people with expertise to do charrettes on, on different sites and, and look at feasibility. And we also have an organization called Abbott which organizes uh, volunteers to participate in charrettes for communities that don't have access to design expertise. So even with local support for providing professional expertise, I think that the, the key here is really having long-term stewardship to address areas that are not experiencing quick economic prosperity. And I do say this recognizing that while Kansas City is not a front row city, we do have this dynamic because of the prosperity we have in some parts of our community that can reach out to areas that have experienced decline.
1: I feel like you're making a, a really important point here, and it's a point about how we get things done. And I I really feel like this is where this article went off the rails a little bit for me. There's an argument made in here that you've got these poor struggling neighborhoods and these poor struggling communities. You've got back row places that are disenfranchised and they're happy for just anything that we could give them. You know, these these are practical people. And so they're not interested in in these, you know, aggressive zoning and urban design requirements. You know, if Chipotle is going to come in or Tim Hortons is going to come in and they're going to have a big, ugly building with a big, ugly parking lot around it, these very practical people are going to say, Hey, this is better than nothing. Give give it to me. Let's go. And somehow there, there's a defense of that. Like, Hey, you know, urbanists, stop pretending that. And I, it, the word they use in here is pedestrian or vulgar. It's the, here's a you know what many urbanists would see as pedestrian or vulgar, such as a standalone Chipotle or Tim Hortons, is often greeted with open arms. This is where I feel this this argument goes off the rail because it juxtaposes there being two choices. One choice is a top-down, beautiful urbanist model, and the other one is a top-down, pragmatic urbanist model. And I think that there's clearly a third choice, and it's the third choice that you have just enunciated. It's a a bottom-up, community-based, community-focused model. Some of the most exciting places that I've seen, and I'll point to neighborhoods in in Memphis, Tennessee, I'll point to neighborhoods in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, two places that are definitely part of that back row conversation. These are places that not only would not tolerate the Tim Hortons or the Chipotle, They're actively working to create economic ecosystems in their community that are scaled to the people that live there. They are trying to create opportunities to do things. And yes, in the overall urbanist conversation, they may not be sexy. They may not be headline creating. They may not wind up on on the front cover of the APA journal or what have you, but they're scaled to the people that are there. They're very accessible. Um, and people there broadly support them. They're, they're not going to jump up and down for the Chipotle. They're not going to jump up and down for the dollar store because they're part of the recovery that is going on in their neighborhoods. I think that's, that is where traditional planning and traditional planners, and you know feel free to take issue with this because I know you're closer to this world today than I am. I've been out of that world for for a little more than a decade now. I feel like traditional planners want some kind of respect amongst other planners. And as we were preparing for this, the scene that kept running through my head is a scene from the movie Moneyball, where the Brad Pitt character, Billy Bean, is sitting with the guy who's helping him out, the tech guy. And they're, they're going to make a big trade. And the guy who's helping him out is like, dude, you can't do this. And Brad Pitt says, why? And he says, because you're going to get so much criticism. The Brad Pitt character, Billy Bean, he's like, dude, you're asking the wrong question. Like, you do, believe, do you believe in what we're doing? Do you believe in the outcome here? There's no reason for us to be worried about criticism if, if we're doing the right thing, if we believe in what we're doing. And I kind of feel that way amongst my fellow planners and fellow urbanists. Why do we really care how urbanists judge us? If the work we're doing in the trenches here in Brainerd, there in Kansas City, in these Rust Belt states, are really addressing the needs of people in our communities, who cares if the snobby urbanists uh, look down on us? If people's lives are actually getting better, that's what we're going to be ultimately measured on.
0: Well, speaking as someone who works as a planning consultant in many small towns and mid-sized American cities... The challenge that the author brought up is really resonated with me because we often work in context where your approach to urban design and zoning codes, quite frankly, vary based on the realities of that place. Someone once asked a question to my colleague, why can't you just apply the same zoning code to every community? And the answer to that is is something that I think the author hit on pretty directly where communities really require that Their development policies are scaled to their economic realities. If zoning becomes too complex or requires too much in order to implement some urban design vision, this ostracizes people who can potentially play a role in the evolution of that community. Those are the incremental developers in my mind we'd all like to live in this world where we can simply codify and require the best standards of urban design that would result in some urban utopia. And I think the hard pill to swallow is that there is no utopia and the evolution of our places is going to be messy and sometimes not designed to the standards of the popular urbanists. And we cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And we, we shouldn't allow that to ostracize the people in our communities who can play a role in in how our communities change. And I think that is actually a lot more important than having perfect design everywhere you go. And the reason I am so drawn to the idea of incrementalism, especially in contexts where urban design is, is not the most important priority is because incremental development decentralizes the impacts of potentially less I- ideal design anyway. I think of my neighborhood, for example, which consists of many buildings on small lots built in the 1890s. And some buildings, maybe 25% of them, are very beautiful and very well designed. And they would score high on the urban design scale And probably 50% of buildings are much more, you know, they're moderately well-designed, but they're much more modest. Uh, They're not extravagant. These are contributors to the neighborhood's overall context. And then there's a number of buildings that don't follow an ideal pattern or, or don't follow the principles of great design and would probably rank very low on the urban design scale, but It's kind of okay to have some ugly buildings in the neighborhood and maybe over time um, they will play their role and they will change. But I think that a big part is kind of humbling ourselves and accepting that we can't micromanage great urban design into existence. It needs to happen naturally and in places that are not experiencing a lot of economic pressure. We need to enable things to happen. We can't let perfect design keep things from happening.
1: I feel like the key word in what you said there is humble. And you know, to me, humble and urban planner, they're antithesis of each other far too often. I used to joke in planning school that like everyone in here, their number one goal in life is to design the perfect city. Um, you know you you don 't go into planning school because you want to humbly serve people. generally, those people go into social work. I think good urban planning today looks more like social work than it looks like you know a kinder version of Robert Moses. I think that 's the difficult thing is that right now, if we want to do right by our neighborhoods, if we want to have them grow to be financially healthy and successful and prosperous places. If if we want the people there uh, to enjoy a high quality of life, we have to start with that humility. And the the planner becomes more of a person who clears obstacles out of people's way, a person who goes out and, and is the small catalyst to the next step of intensity, as opposed to someone who comes in with a master vision and a master plan and is working with large developers to reshape neighborhoods. I look at the, the places where my city here has gone wrong over the last decade, and it's been places where we went out and chased the big federal grant. It was the times when we spent a lot of time down at the state legislature lobbying for money. It were the times when the, the developer came to town with the Starbucks or the, the chain store, what have you, and we bent over backwards and gave them subsidies and cleared the obstacles out of their way. These things always underperformed. These things were always net negatives for the community. The places where we've gone right have been the places where we started with neighborhoods. We started with people and their lived experiences. We asked the question about what what is the problem here and how do we, in, in, the, in the most tactical and, and quick way, solve this problem so that we can get on to identifying and solving the next problem and the next problem and the next problem. When we've identified iterative kind of feedback loops in places and worked with humility, letting the people who are out there living lead with their actions, we have done some amazing things. What I read in this article is really the internal narrative struggle of the playing profession trying to be relevant in a world that has really moved beyond them or or needs to move beyond them. That's both sad and hopeful to me.
0: Yeah. Well, the author touches a bit on how urbanist culture plays out on social media and the ineffectiveness of advocates who focus too much on sort of providing criticism Rather than making a plan to do what they can to change what they want to see in their own communities. But
1: isn't that like the standard? I mean, there's a part of me that's like, that's the standard lament of the bureaucrat. I mean, I, I'll tell you, when, when I was first writing this blog, I can't tell you how many engineers would say to me, well, Chuck, all you do is complain. What you need to do is go to uh the official American Society of Civil Engineers convention, meet with them, convince them that they need to change, uh, get the Ashto guide updated, get the manual and uniform traffic control devices amended. I have worked to try to get parking standards changed in my own city amongst five people who are friends. Yeah, there's <laughs> no way that, you know, you go through all that. And I, I feel like it's a it's a defensive, reflexive. Kind of almost like a power assertion. Twitter's a nasty place. And a lot of the criticism there is, is just stupid and unfounded. But you just ignore that and move on. you know. I, I, I think if we are so professionally sensitive to that kind of thing, we're not doing our jobs and we're not doing good for people. I, I don't know, Abby. I, I interrupted you there. I, I apologize. I got a little... <laughs>
0: Well, that's okay. I could see why you'd have strong feelings about Twitter. And I remember when I the first time I got on Twitter was probably like two or three years ago, I'd not ever been on Twitter. And the first thing I noticed was how mean everybody was. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 out of control. And so I I'd try not to be a mean person on Twitter. And I, I don't know what it is about that platform that makes people really sassy to each other. But it is pretty unproductive. And I think the important point that the author made or, you know, I, I drew from his statements is that we are living in a world of decentralized communication, but we have centralized community development practices. And I think we're often inclined to focus our energy and frustrations through venting on social media. And you know, I'm sure I've done this before too, but unfortunately this is not as effective as actually doing something. And we ought to be reassessing how we are contributing to our own places and driving cultural change through positive communication and action. And this takes a lot more effort than social media venting. And it means actually contributing our time and building relationships with people and volunteering and sharing ideas and being patient to foster cultural change. And this means that we can't hold too tightly to our own personal vision of the future. And we need to be humble and knowing that we don't know all the answers and the evolution of our places will happen by many other people with their own set of principles and values. And I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I think that we have focused so much energy on being critical on places like social media. And and when I say we, I mean the the urbanists of the world, the people who care about making communities better places to live and are frustrated with how we've designed cities in North America.
1: Yeah. I fundamentally agree with you. You said something in there that I, I think is profoundly true. You said that we have basically a decentralized cultural conversation going on but a centralized or formal kind of planning process and i heard you say that you know part of what needs to happen here is that this kind of chaotic cultural conversation needs to actually grow to become more respectful or more proactive and i agree with that i fully agree with that i do think however that the other side of the equation the uh, the very formal planning process or the very formal you know, approach to creating urbanism through professionals. I think that needs to become a little more chaotic. It needs to become a, a lot less formal and a lot less, you know, stodgy and 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 really power broker based, and a lot more bottom up democratic.
0: Yeah, I, I very much somewhere. agree. Yeah, yeah, there needs to be a point in the middle because. We're experiencing functions that are both centralized and decentralized and it, they, they aren't driving together and it's, it's a, an, an issue and, and you can't really formally fix that issue um, in a top-down sort of way. It's almost that these things need to work themselves out in some way and I, I don't know exactly how you do that.
1: <laughs> well, categorically, I can say that being worried about what quote-unquote urbanists say about you... Should be like the lowest priority on the list.
0: Oh yeah, I <laughs> it's it's not a priority in my life, right. to be completely honest with you.
1: <laughs> if the you know smarmy elitist on on Twitter, or if I go to the APA convention and they won't come to my session because you know it's not on the high line or whatever, who cares? Like I don't. I like go back to the uh, the money ball thing. You know, like you're asking the wrong question. Like, do we care? No, we don't care.
0: Right. Exactly. So I think we'll end it there today. But before I let you go, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that has been captivating our attention lately. I do want to hear a little bit of an update on your book, Chuck, but what else has been on your radar?
1: We're restarting the Strong Towns podcast. I've been been off. I haven't done an episode, I think a a new one since uh, either May or June. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, but um, I'm now in a position to start. And so next week we'll have that. I'm reading a book called The Myth of Capitalism by Jonathan Tepper and Denise Hearn, because I'm going to be interviewing Denise for an upcoming episode on the Strong Towns podcast. This is a fantastic book, and I really feel bad that I haven't read it up until now, because it's been on my list, it's been on my to-do thing. But we're going to have a great conversation with her, and it's a fantastic book about basically how... The system we are living in should be criticized, but we shouldn't call it capitalism. We should call it what it is, which is a, a monopoly, oligopoly-based kind of market system. She has some brilliant criticism and critique, and, and as well as some ideas of what we should do. In terms of my book, <laughs> it was due October 1st. It is not done, which is an embarrassment for me because I'm, I'm not the kind of person who is late on things. But you know, having a concussion and a pandemic and a bunch of stuff has kind of delayed it. It's still going to come out next year. I think we're looking at September as opposed to uh, you know earlier in the late spring. But uh, you know, w- within one year, we will all be reading Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. So that's the hope.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Well, last week Kevin Klinkenberg recommended that. I read an article called Why You Should Quit the News by Mark Manson. So I was really pleased to learn that this author actually provides audio recordings of all of his work. So I've taken some time this week to listen up on other articles in his library. Uh, Two of my favorite that I listened to this week, uh, one's titled Eight Logical Fallacies That Mess Us All Up, and the other is called The Cognitive Biases That Make Us All Terrible People. So if you have some listening time I highly recommend you check out his work. He has a whole library of these very very long articles and each of them he actually narrates. So if you don't have time to sit and read all of these articles, you can actually, you know, multitask if you're doing other things and listen to these. Another piece that I listened to this week is very much in line with our discussion today actually. Uh, it's from James Howard Kunstler's podcast he brought on two guys named John Boone and Hunter Renfro, who talked about their approach to real estate development in Birmingham, Alabama. Neither of them are professionally trained in urban design or architecture, but have applied their own principles of urban design to how they develop in places that are certainly not front row cities. So I highly recommend that that podcast and that interview. It, it is eye opening just to listen to people and and learning about their experience and how they're approaching real estate development.
1: I I did listen to that podcast on the counselor show and I would agree. I'm checking out Mark Manson right now. So now you've, now you've given me something that I have to do this weekend, which I always love when you do that. So thank you.
0: Yeah. That's going to take you all weekend. It's basically a rabbit hole of really, really excellent knowledge and information so I'm, I'm glad that now you have something to do this weekend
1: <laughs> very cool thank you Abby. Cool.
0: well thanks chuck for joining me today and it's thanks so nice everybody to chat for, with you. with yeah it's awesome to chat with you <laughs> and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of upzoned keep doing what you can to build a strong town have a good weekend